This is an ABC podcast. We acknowledge Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, the traditional custodians of lands, waterways and skies across Australia. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and future. When a big event hits a community, we're all impacted. And while it's not useful to compare one person's experience with another, it is important that we're able to support people in the way they need us to. People who've experienced trauma before, maybe an earlier disaster or something else that's impacted on them deeply, in some cases can experience more negative impacts from a new event. So when a whole community has experienced many traumas before, that makes the recovery experience different again. My name is Kate Brady, and today on After the Disaster, we're talking about how to support communities with previous trauma after a new disaster event. Like people who fled war or disasters and arrived in Australia as refugees, or Indigenous communities who have experienced intergenerational trauma. Bayami Williamson has a unique understanding of the impacts of disasters on her Indigenous communities in Australia. I'm a Uwadio man from northwest New South Wales and I also have family ties into northwest Queensland. Um, I'm a PhD candidate and research associate at the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research at Australian National University. Obviously, the Black Summer bushfires and when that was unfolding, um, we knew those bushfires were hitting in areas with really high populations of Indigenous peoples, um, and we also, um, but we knew that no one was had really done the work to look at to to, to examine the impacts of um, well, one the extent of impacts on Indigenous peoples, like the sheer numbers of people that were affected, really big townships, any sort of discrete communities, but then secondly, the um, the unique impacts on Indigenous peoples when they experience kind of. Um, um, yeah, harm in the form of these really these really massive events. We heard from Bayami in Episode 7, where we talked about the profound connection Indigenous people have to the land and the environment, and the impact that connection has on their experience when a disaster hits the landscape. In Bayami's research, he's spoken to Indigenous people from different parts of Australia about their experience after disasters. Something that he's heard again and again is that the way people are treated and understood after a disaster can be very harmful. We've seen, you know, it's just completely unacceptable accounts of Indigenous peoples being evacuated during the, um, during the bushfires, of them arriving at evacuation centres and just being treated disgracefully, you know, people being um, flat-out refused to be supported, um, people being made to feel unwelcome at evacuation centres, at relief centres, people who felt they had no place there. And all of those are accounts of uh, people have stated directly and consistently throughout many different areas that they feel like they're, you know, the fact that they are Indigenous peoples was the factor, you know. They, they put it down to flat out racism um, in going to these places in their incredible time of need and being treated horribly. Rather than going to evacuation centres, 
you know, pe- there are accounts of people sleeping outside of evacuation centres. There are accounts of Indigenous peoples um, sleeping in their cars, you know, on the side of the road. So it was really unsafe for Indigenous peoples. It was unsafe physically, um, you know, because of the threat of the fires themselves and the smoke. But it was unsafe culturally and socially as well. They're Indigenous peoples, you know, who are really attached to the land. They feel safe in the land. And even when the land is under threat and the land is burning, um, people have said that they would rather stay at their home. People have said they'd rather stay on their country rather than go and be experienced to these other human disasters. We know that disasters are potentially traumatic events. For some people they are traumatic, for other people they aren't. Um, But can you talk to us a bit about how the historical intergenerational and ongoing trauma that Indigenous communities and Indigenous peoples have experienced will will impact potentially traumatic events like disasters? Yeah, so when we talk to Indigenous peoples about um, experiencing racism at evacuation centres, so that is for many people that was more traumatic than the than the disaster itself. And so it's not the disaster that's the true catastrophe, it's the response to the disaster. But Indigenous peoples also see the actual fires themselves and the environmental um, emergency as being linked to their, um, their marginalisation and their kind of um, their, their forced removal from their homelands and their ongoing marginalisation in their management. And that is also a source of, you know, historical trauma and grief and the fact that they're not allowed to be who they are, practice their culture, look after their lands, fulfil their cultural responsibilities. There's so much to it, but it's actually not, um, it's really not that complicated. We just need a bit of emphasis, a bit of time and a bit of resources in to unpack all of these stuff. And I don't think it's like, a question of we need to do all of this just to support Indigenous communities, but doing all of this, understanding, compounding, cascading disasters, supporting people in culturally appropriate ways, in culturally centred ways, um, I actually think it just makes better practitioners. What are some of the best examples you've seen of, of you know, really positive recovery practices from agencies supporting Indigenous com- communities after a disaster? For Indigenous communities, recovery of the natural environment and recovery of community are the same thing. And so we've seen some really positive examples like in southern parts of New South Wales that were really badly affected um, in um, in getting out and looking for cultural heritage sites after fires. So, so it's one of the unintended consequences of fires is that it opens up parts of the country that are just were previ- previously really overgrown, um, inaccessible, it's like once in a generation times to get out and access uh, the country. And what people find is just extraordinary. You know, people who know what they're looking for in the landscapes can follow certain trails who still have kind of, you know, oral traditions of certain meeting places or, or camping grounds and things. They go and they find them and they, they, they uncover all of these, you know, really important little pockets of, of their own history. And there's so much um, opportunity in that. And, uh, And there's so much kind of strength in that as well because it's using a disaster to facilitate some cultural revival. And the other thing is like, you know, talking about restoration of the environment, how to look after the environment. So especially something as significant as the the bushfires, 
Like bushfires were just such a spectacular example of the wrong kind of environmental management. You know, it just showed it laid bare the inadequacies of non-indigenous land management. Um, and so, and it opened up all of these doors for local average, local indigenous communities to then um, talk about what what role they are going to play in the future of managing their country, whereas previously they'd been locked out of these discussions. If you had a really good friend that had just gone through a disaster, knowing what you know from all the people that you've spoken to and all the research that you've done, what would you say to them? Oh, if it was an Indigenous person, you know what I'd do? I'd just, I'd just make them a cup of tea, make them a warm meal and make them feel safe. That's it. I don't, like for, for people who have been through disasters, um, especially Indigenous people who have been through disasters, oh, I don't feel like they need advice and I don't feel like they need, um, you know, help. They need, they need safety, you know, and they need safety in their relationships. They need safety in their spaces. Um, you know, and they need, like, oh, they need safety and security in their economic livelihoods. So Indigenous peoples have learned through colonisation, Indigenous peoples have fashioned just incredible traits of resilience. The fact that Indigenous peoples are still here, that they still exist as cohesive um, cultural groups, that they still have attachments to lands, that they still speak to varying degrees, their languages, they still know their medicines, they still eat their traditional foods. Like it's incredible, really. It's a, it's a wonder of, of human kind of resilience. Indigenous people still have these things. And so in times of disasters, it's like we don't need to be helping them with their build their supportive support their resilience or or help them through that because it's all intrinsic in them they have it by virtue of them still being there existing they still have it and so it's just about doing things around the outside and that just makes them feel welcome that they have a place The resilience that is in Indigenous communities that has kept cultures alive through so much resistance is different to the resilience shown by people who have come to Australia as refugees. But support agencies can learn skills to better assist both groups. Uh, my name is Zechariah Mohammed Omar. I, I came to Australia six years ago from a refugee camp. I work at Tendakaya Disability Service. I'm the manager and we established another organization called Open Hands that supports the migrants and the refugees in Townsville. In the years Zachariah has worked with the former refugee community in Townsville, there's been a cyclone, a flood and now COVID. All disasters that many people in this community had no experience of and weren't ready for. So he's learned a lot about how to support people from linguistically diverse communities through a big event. They have language barrier and they have less stress than people who can speak their language. And that way, when I go to them, I speak to them all the time. And, and that way, they're happy. It's all about like calming them and giving them a sense of identity. That's most important. Um, when you say you speak to them in their mother tongue, how many languages do you speak? I can speak um, five languages. Wow. <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, and was English your fifth language? or? Yes. Oh, my goodness. And yes. the, you manage a, a, a disability support service in English. Yes. That's amazing. 
Yeah, it's like, like the things that when the way I understood is the language is not a, the first thing. It's all about how you can welcome someone. Is the thing like that's the fundamental thing to show the person is he belong to this office and to identify his needs. That's what you need to do, and that's what I do. Language barriers aren't everything, but they are part of the challenge for people from non-English speaking backgrounds after a big event. There are a few challenges particular to people from refugee backgrounds too. Like people might not know where to go or to get information from. For example, some people don't know that the ABC is an emergency broadcasting service, or that there'll usually be evacuation spaces that they can go to if they need. Also, if people have only been in Australia for a short time, they may not even know about the risks that exist where they live now, so the event itself comes as a massive shock. We have a very good communication about the weather, but still the community do not have those access or knowledge or encouragement, and that's why they're not, they, were, they are not ready when it starts. And when aftermath, they don't know what to do. Also, a lot of these people have come from really, really difficult situations, come to Australia and felt safe, hopefully, and then this disaster has happened and sort of shaken that bit as well. Yes. Yes, most important, like um, an elderly person or a mother who was in the refugee camp for 30 years, 40 years, in the refugee camp when she comes to Australia and she lowers her guts and then this happens to her, she will feel very depressed. This We went through this before and we can go through from here. And that's the main message. It must take a lot of, um, you know, like really diving into the reserves of of energy I suppose that you know if you've been through something really big you've let your guard down you've started relaxing and then you need to ramp it up again that must feel really exhausting for a lot of people yes definitely it's important that the support we offer to people from refugee backgrounds is really the support they need not the support we might assume they need for example if you are a rugby player and I buy for you soccer jersey and soccer and boots I spend a lot of money to you but that's not what you want and that's why it was that was clear explanation I think if you're someone who struggled to access services that are right for you don't give up if you can try and find an organization that's coordinating other disaster services available maybe it's your local government or a recovery hub and as best you can tell them that you need a different type of help If they're not places that you feel like you can go to, and if you're already connected to another service, even if it's a non-disaster service, such as an Indigenous health organisation or a refugee support program, a school or a sporting club, reach out to them. If you can explain where you're finding it hard, they may be able to help you navigate where you need to go. It's really tricky. I'm sorry it's so difficult. For the rest of us, we have a lot of work to do to make sure everyone can access the type of support they need, when they need it, and to feel safe getting that help. If you have a neighbour or a colleague that you think might be struggling to get the help they need, 
If you're able to, ask if there's a way that you can help them connect to what they need. If you're a community leader or working in your community's recovery, check in to see who isn't accessing your services or who isn't coming to your events. Is there a way you can reach out to them? Disasters can be awful for everyone, but people who've experienced past trauma might have different impacts. It's important that everyone can get the help they need when they need it. After the disaster has been produced with the support of Australian Red Cross and the University of Melbourne, our executive producer and editor is Liz Keane from Headline Productions. Fact checks are by Shona Witten. The supervising producer is Philip Ashley Brown and our distribution producer is Zoe Walker. Our sound engineer is Grant Walter and I'm Dr Kate Brady. Stay connected in an emergency with ABC Radio, your official emergency broadcaster. Find your local frequency and see incidents in your area at abc.net.au slash emergency.